Hello, and welcome to the Oral History at Shippensburg University podcast. This program comes to you from students in the Oral History class that is part of Shippensburg University's Public History and Graduate Applied History programs. This year, students conducted oral history interviews with people in South Central Pennsylvania who shared their experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic. Most of this year's podcast will be drawn from those interviews, and one will be from archival interviews on a topic that is different altogether. Please be our guests as we share what we've learned about the past through oral history and about oral history itself. Hello, my name is Sarah Hoffeditz, and my narrator is Susan Spicka. She is a executive director, Education Voters, and she advocates for students' education and the budgets that schools receive. Hi, my name is Kathleen Foley, and I interviewed Dr. Nicole Hill. She is currently the interim provost and chief of academic affairs, but during COVID, she was actually the dean of the College of Education and Human Services. And what we mainly spoke about through her interview was uh, what were her responsibilities uh, behind the scenes of as the dean. My name is Richard Jones. I interviewed uh, Dr. Leslie Brown. She is the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Shippensburg University. And in our interview, we primarily discussed how the COVID-19 pandemic impacted that department in particular at the college. Hi, it's um, Felipe Lupian. Uh, the narrator I interviewed is Dr. Robert Schaefer. He retired actually as a professor of history and education from Shippensburg University in the spring of 2020 at the end of that semester. And we did touch a couple different aspects of his experience in the pandemic, uh, but that isn't just education, but also included his personal life and how it impacted him and his friends. So our four narrators all have positions in education and COVID-19 affected them in very similar but different ways. In our podcast, we will be discussing how the pandemic affected the professionals, what step they needed to take, and how COVID-19 could have made less of an impact on the country if we were better prepared. So I guess let's just kind of jump into the thick of it. So what did you guys think as to why the United States and potentially just the whole world was so unprepared for this massive event in our life? So I would say we were not really that prepared is because we like we obviously knew that at some point there could be a worldwide pandemic. There have been multiple books, movies, articles that discussed the possibility of we it even started uh, for the United States was when uh, President Bill Clinton read a book called The Cobra Event. And that talked about a disease that was spread like the common cold. And the fact that it made him realize that this could possibly happen, that is what created the need for a department for diseases. That department, of course, grew, but it also disappeared during President Trump's uh, second year of presidency when COVID was starting to make an appearance overseas in other countries. Um, one thing I would like to add, and, you know, as my own experience as a history teacher, when teaching about different events in history, 
often people tend to see things uh, like these are far away places and far away times that bear no relevance to today. And so if you teach something as simple as like the Black Death or the Spanish flu, uh, once again, those are just alien things that happen in alien times on alien worlds. And my life is just going to be the same it was yesterday. It's going to be the same tomorrow. It's going to be the same two weeks from now. And so there's also that sense, you know, as a not just as a country, but as a whole entire society that you know, we don't need to worry about things that happen somewhere else. And it's not an issue until it becomes an issue. And so that uh, the whole country, the whole world was fairly caught off guard. And that's the interesting thing about Bill Clinton reading that book, uh, The Cobra Event, is that, well, you know, we know these things happened. We know they have happened and they've happened fairly recently yet on the news we often heard people say unprecedented but they were presidented we did see these things happen schools did get closed down in 1918 and 1919 and 1920 dance halls were closed uh trials were held outdoors all of these things happened nothing that happened the last few years was unprecedented yet everybody spoke of it as being unprecedented this is a quote i just want to throw into from a news article the nbc news uh, that discusses about how the united states wasn't prepared for the pandemic Stuart simonson uh, he served in the bush administration and is now working at who he wrote in a 2010 health article or a health journal article that pandemic preparedness has not been part of the national dialogue long enough to be securely embedded in the policymaking process. This means that it is highly vulnerable to shrinking budgets and shifting priorities. And just as you said, Felipe, I think everyone was focusing our attentions to other concerns uh, like the Iraq war, 9-11, et cetera, et cetera, the bigger problems that start to hit us one by one. And pandemic preparedness just I guess, slowly started dropping away. And when President Trump uh, fired the head of that department, they believed that it wouldn't happen. I think it's interesting that like you kind of mentioned how we think it's all off in the distant lands, because like personally, I was a bit naive. I was like, oh, you know, it would never come here. And I think that's something that a lot of Americans felt was that, oh, it's over there, it's going to happen, it's going to stay over there, it won't come over here. And then it showed up in Washington State, and it's like, oh, well, it'll just stay in Washington State, it won't move anywhere else. And so I think what also caught the American people off guard was just this naiveness. We all thought like, oh, we're untouchable, it's not going to happen to us, it's all overseas, it stays overseas. Unfortunately, it's not like Vegas where everything stays in Vegas. It does spread around. I can I can concur with Sarah. I, I remember when the COVID-19 first arrived in the United States. And at the time, I recall thinking, well, it's over. It's over there. It's over in the West Coast. And I paid attention to as it spread. I, I was attending Hagerstown Community College at the time in the state of Maryland. And I'm sure many can relate, but we went on spring break. We were told we would it would be extended a week, and then, well, we never ended up coming back. And I'm glad that you mentioned um, about going on spring break, Richard, because uh, when I was interviewing Provost Hill, 
I asked her if uh, Shippensburg University was expecting COVID to go as long as they did. And uh, this is what she had to say about it. Well, it was really interestingly timed with spring break. Mm -hmm. So um, at least when I really started paying attention to COVID-19 and and started to listen and and learn about how it was impacting more of our local community, because Mm -hmm. I think prior to that, my focus or sort of awareness of it was more global, more sort of in other pockets of the world or areas not close to South Central Pennsylvania. So it was really around um, spring break and beginning to have meetings. So as an academic college dean, I report to the provost. So the provost had meetings with us and um, just talked about um, what was being recommended in terms of um, having some time where we weren't coming together as a community. And so beginning conversations about spring break and possibly mm-hmm. extending spring break. Mm-hmm. So that's really when I would started to, to really think about it from a professional mindset is what would it mean for us Um, as we were in the middle of spring semester to um, expand out when we had our students come back to campus. Mm -hmm. So those initial conversations professionally were really focused on a temporary solution to what we thought was going to be a time-limited situation for that semester. Okay. I think it's funny that like she kind of she kind of had a sort of like an opposite reaction to like with COVID and spring break because I remember like when we went on spring break in Shippensburg University I was just like, oh, yay, we get an extra week. (laughs) And then, like, for her, it was just like she had to think of the next steps of what she needed to do for the campus. And I, like, I guess it was just selfishness on my part. But (laughs) I, it it was just interesting to hear what she thought would be the next steps and how that was her first thing in mind whenever she heard this, like, nationwide, worldwide pandemic starting to happen and do you guys remember when we all were told you should start wearing masks like I felt very awkward walking into a store and I would be one out of very number very few number of people that were wearing masks before it became state uh, mandated I think it was very surreal kind of like is it kind of it made the world shut down basically and um you see that especially with school and um, made me feel like I was in sort of like dystopian movie for a while. And I just didn't know what was, you know, the next day from the next. That's actually a pretty good description. Uh, I know Dr. Schaefer, he mentioned how at first he thought, oh, was this going to be blow over after two, three, four weeks? end up extending spring break a little and then everything would go back to business and then all of a sudden it wasn't just two three or four weeks long uh i thought the same thing too um as soon as we heard that you know the the order was given out to close down schools um the school district where i work it was a two-week close down that was announced and so we would just not be in classes for those two weeks and then it was just always like, okay, let's guess when we'll go back. We'll go back by the end of March. We'll go back before the end of May. We'll be back for the last two weeks of school. We'll be back for the last day of school just so kids could say goodbye to each other. Oh, everything will be back to normal in the fall. And it's just like that slow realization where it's not. It's totally different and it's going to be long. Um, and for 
his part, Dr. Schaefer, he, he was content with making that spring semester his last semester and not coming back for more in the fall, which I don't blame him, especially when he mentions uh, how difficult it was for him to use the technology. And Sarah, I think you mentioned before that you had him that spring, right? Mm-hmm. I had uh, I had him for theory and practice of history, and it was very off the radar with him. Yeah, he did mention how you had difficulties connecting with students. To us very early on. Um, in terms of uh, particularly how things, how it affected us, obviously, instead of teaching in person, and in my case, supervising, I had five student teachers that semester. Obviously, we they were not, they were not going out into schools. Um, you know, everything had to be done via um, email or our learning platform at Shippensburg was Desire to Learn D2L, and I never really learned Zoom. I did not conduct classes by Zoom. I sent out. Um, lectures that I wrote and then interspersed with PowerPoints or links to various um, short videos. Um, students were supposed to respond by doing things in writing, uh, obviously scaled down from the original syllabus. And it was very quickly apparent that Many students, either because of um, lack of effective technology, lack of good, I mean, there were students who were trying to, to write their assignments on cell phones, which was not very successful. There were students who were out um, without broadband and you know, it took them a while to get hotspots. Um, and others who I'm sure their family situation was such that they could not um, focus on their schooling or their, to, to be blunt in some cases, their literacy skills were somewhat low. So, so Dr. Bloom there was referring to a lot of the difficulties he and his students encountered. Uh, and that brings up a, a study done by the Rand Corporation that examined what kind of things schools needed to have in place to be prepared for the pandemic, to con for instruction to continue, for learning to continue. And they developed uh, five main indicators. And this includes, the first one is providing devices such as laptops or tablets to those students who need them at minimum and to all students so that everybody could have the same standard device in an ideal situation. Uh, number two, training teachers on delivering online instruction. Uh, number three, using a learning management system. Uh, number four, fully providing fully online or blended learning courses. And number five, establishing plans to deliver instruction during a prolonged school closure. And it and they noted that the majority of schools did not have any of this in place. And I mean, before the pandemic, most people wouldn't have thought that they were necessary to have in place. And so some of the numbers they reported were 87% of principals uh, reported having at least one indicator, 7% reported having all five indicators. Uh, and the more indicators 
that schools had led to more equitable education. And you didn't have the situation where you have some students thriving or other students aren't because of maybe the lack of, maybe they have a teacher who isn't very tech savvy or they have a lack of technology at home. Uh, and that just that just shows you that the gap between students who have who come from more wealthy families versus students from less wealthy families. Schools that already were putting these things into place for other reasons found themselves in a very lucky position. Like in my school, every uh, we just started handing out Chromebooks to every kid. And so that was just a lucky coincidence that, oh, we happen to have devices for all these kids, so we don't need to worry about that. But I can imagine how that would have been more difficult. And the interesting thing I want to point out is that you know this is dr schaefer's students they're all adults they're all you know they're not 14 year old kids so if that was the if those were the troubles taking place among adult students you can only multiply that for minor students to go off of what felipe had mentioned about uh teachers being prepared and working with their students online I had actually asked Provost Till during that time when we all had to transition to online classes, if any of the professors were comfortable with transitioning, because I know some of them have never used Zoom before. How do we even ensure our students have the kind of technology they would need to be able to have the courses delivered virtually? How do I make sure the faculty who are delivering the courses had the technology that they need? How did we manage all of that with a really abrupt timeline for transition? Did a lot of the faculties seem pretty comfortable of switching from in-person to doing everything online now, relying on D2L, mm -hmm. of sort of expecting the students to sort of remember on their own ways, like, hey, you have this due now, you have this to do, so on. Um, I don't think, um, I think there was probably a spectrum of comfortability, comfortability. Um, you know, I would say that we probably had um, 20 to 25% of our faculty that had experienced teaching online, knew sort of what would be quality um, pedagogy in that kind of delivery system. Um, and again, you know, we were, rapidly figuring out Zoom at that time. It's now so pervasive, but we weren't utilizing it so comprehensively at that point. So we were sort of learning a lot of things as we went. Um, and then I would say that there was probably a group of 20 to 15% of faculty that continued to feel uncomfortable as we move forward and, and wrestled with how to deliver their courses in that format. Um, what I found though is that most people were very agile. They were very responsive. They were really working to triage okay, this is a particular course I'm, I'm teaching. How am I going to navigate this for the next couple of weeks? How am I going to figure this out? And then as we made decisions to basically deliver the rest of the semester virtually, you know, how am I going to do perhaps tests that I thought I was going to be delivering in person? How are we going to, um, you know, proctor those? So that's essentially what she had to say on the matter. My, my uh, individual, Susan Svicka, she like mentioned this like later on in her her discussion with me about like she came she has a background with working with students who are disadvantaged economically and financially and she talked about how with this transition online that there was a lot of students who were missing out on education and not only were they missing out with just being close to people but 
some of them actually just ended up just disappearing. So the school districts are now suffering because they don't know where a lot of these kids went. And it's more of like older kids, like high school, maybe middle school ages, where these kids just kind of went missing. They're off the radar right now. And it's either they just, you know, fully transitioned to online school uh, at a charter school, or they went to a completely different school district and just didn't pull out from the other one. So I think it's kind of interesting to hear how like these two like professors and professional individuals are talking about the struggle of going online and then you see it happening with kids too and not only that but you also see it affecting mental health mm-hmm. um Susan Spickle mentioned a lot about how the mental health crisis was increasing because of just going to online because of the lack of interaction of like human beings because while we may be seeing each other via a camera it's not the same as it would be in person um it has had an unbelievable impact on education from every and every single aspect so i think um in school districts there are now students who have experienced I was just talking to a school counselor yesterday. Um, you know, being isolated has created a lot of mental health issues for students. So when I was interviewing Dr. Brown and mentioning how online learning impacted the, the Department of Arts and Sciences in particular, she mentioned that in many of these disciplines, such as the labs for such as biology, chemistry, and physics, how the on, isn't online learning is not the most ideal way to teach that and how that might have impacted some of the ways that those classes were taught? Um, well, I mean, there are obviously there there are some of our disciplines that just are not well suited to being online, but because this was a bit of a national shutdown, laboratory sciences like the biology and chemistry and physics is not the ideal way to teach those things because you have to, you know, you have to learn some skills and those are learned in the lab. But again, faculty were, you know, they were very good about making videos and doing what they could. Um, But in the end, there's not much of a substitute for being in the lab and manually handling specimens and glassware and things of the sort. Uh, So that was a little difficult. But again, you know, nationally, this was happening. So everybody's students were were, um, having that issue. I think something else that like that can tie in with, you know, if we thinking politically, my individual, she talked about a lot of how because of COVID, there was a lot of things that were branched off from it. So she she wrote an article about highlighting this group of called extremists. And basically it's this group of people who go into school boards who have radical, strong, sometimes violent ideas about how a school should behave, what they should be teaching, what sort of things they should ban, and basically flipping the school district into their favor. And so I think that is one of the kind of worst things that kind of popped out of COVID, out of all of the things that popped out of COVID, unfortunately. She labels them as extremists. I'd like to have her explain a little bit more about it. Then it also, like, families were able to, like, pipe in and see what their kids were learning. 
and some of them didn't really like what they were seeing, like new different kinds of math or whatever. And so um, right-wingers who would really like to privatize public education really saw an opportunity. So, And so she labels them as right-wingers, but then she later goes on and explains that they're kind of like extremist groups. <laughs> and I, I think that's kind of one of the sad, unfortunate realities that schools are now having to deal with after the pandemic because the pandemic was worse enough but now they're having to deal with something even greater because of people just letting other individuals who have terrible ideas and only thinking about their pockets rather than the minds of their students be their voice and infiltrating their thoughts with negative and provocative type of ideas And I actually have a clip from Perlis Till to follow yours up, Sarah, because I asked her as well as uh, her thoughts on uh, these board meetings where people come in and they start causing trouble almost. They say things and they do things to get emotions out of other people. And uh, she's a mother herself. She's a mother of two. And this is what she had to say on the matter. And what I heard not only from our local school district superintendent, but what we consistently heard from superintendents is that they would pull parents on their preferences of masking, no masking, coming back, not coming back, and it would be literally 50-50. And so what happened is as schools struggled and wrestled and tried to make decisions that they thought were in the best interest of the health and safety of their students, but also their staff and their teachers, they were pissing off 50%. (laughs) of the community. And what happened was it wasn't just like, oh, I find that irritating. It Mm -hmm. it was these huge reactions. And of course, we've seen the news. We've seen the clips online of these extremists going to teachers' houses, board members' houses, threatening them, everything. And of course, not a lot of people want to teach nowadays. There's an extreme shortage. I have a, a perfect uh, clip to play from Susan um, that she highlights about the the attacked on board members. We have just seen these like really brutal attacks on school boards and on school districts, and they are not organic. It, I mean, I think there was like a core, there was like a kernel of people being really upset with COVID, but then you know they have just been manipulated and exploited, and. Um, all around the state, there are these like small groups of people that are growing who are now, instead of being focused on national politics or even on state level politics, they're focused on their local school board members who are like elected officials, unpaid volunteers, typically, you know what I mean, are in that position, not because they have any personal agenda, but because they actually just want to help, you know, protect their school or help make their schools better and or whatever they want to keep. And one thing I would like to throw in uh, is that a lot of kids consider school their safe place. Like it's there are schools that have washing machines, dryers. They offer uh, meals for children who are from uh, lower poor communities and their parents just can't afford to have running water or fresh fruit or vegetables for their children to eat. And uh, Provost Till makes a note of this because 
as you mentioned earlier, Sarah, about uh, Dr. Spica talking about how COVID really affected everyone uh, mentally. My background is as a professional counselor, and the thing that I worried about and I would have conversations with teachers about is that for a lot of youth, school is their only safe place. Mm -hmm. And so they get breakfast provided, lunch mm -hmm. provided. They have safe adults who can see if something's going on or if they need an intervention. So in mm -hmm. addition to like the educational delivery mm -hmm. um, and the academic side of the house, school can be really the only safe place for many vulnerable youth. And of course, with this big fight of what isn't isn't allowed in schools between the adults, is anyone looking at what the kids need? It's it's nice to see that she also mentioned that because uh, Susan also exp uh, expressed that kind of thing too. She mentioned that basically school is a daycare for a lot of these kids and that now that that was taken away, a lot of families, a lot of parents were getting upset and that's what she explains the right-wingers or the extremists kind of latched onto. They latched onto them being upset that the fact that they had no babysitter, they, they had no one to basically take care of their kids, feed them for the for lunch, um, get their energy all out. And so what the right-wingers right did is they latched onto that kind of anger and then they grew it from there to make it a much larger, unnecessary thing. Uh, I had mentioned to Provost Hill about the numbers of people that don't that used to get their certificates for teaching. Like the number used to be very high. I believe it was possibly in like the fifteen thousands uh, number for pe uh, people that were getting their certificates for teaching. And nowadays, it's dropped down to like five thousand. And we hear in the news that a lot of schools are hiring people that don't have the proper certification. They're asking uh, substitute teachers to take on the job of a full-time actual teacher. Uh, there is a gentleman by the name of Fritz uh, Fikit. I believe I said his last name correctly. He's the regional advocacy coordinator of the Pennsylvania State Education Association, Association. And he says that from 2010 to 2015, there were easily 15,000 new teachers getting their certificates. Mm -hmm. uh, but when we fast forward to 2019 to 2020, the numbers have significantly dropped to 5,000. Mm -hmm. uh, what would you say that some schools are trying to do to fill up these vacant positions? Mm -hmm. Well, we're doing a lot of strategies, and interestingly, um, at Shippensburg University, we've actually seen enrollment growth mm -hmm. since I've been here as dean in our pre-K-4, so our um, in our early childhood education as well as our dual program, and that's certifying both in special ed and pre-K-4. So um, it's interesting challenge for us, and yet we're we're continuing to see some enrollment growth mm -hmm. in those programs. Um, so, you know, things that are happening is that um, we talked about field experiences earlier. So as an undergraduate student moves through freshman, sophomore into junior year, mm -hmm. we're starting to partner with districts and with sort of, they have these 
I guess, intermediary groups that help with substitute teaching. Because mm -hmm. not only do they not have teachers, but then if a teacher gets sick or goes on leave, they have nobody to fill those positions mm -hmm. because they also don't have um, the, the repertoire of substitute teachers like they used to. So our students are starting to work as substitute teachers. Mm -hmm. Before they student teach, they're getting paid. So it's a positive thing for our students. Um, and so that's one strategy. Mm -hmm. We're kind of getting our undergraduate students into the classroom as substitute teachers. Um, more swiftly. Adding on to that, I do have a, a clip where Dr. Schaefer kind of hints on that from his end uh, about the demoralizing aspect of teaching during COVID. Now, him being, you know, a college professor isolates him from a lot of the issues that uh, were described earlier about the school boards. But once again, I I bring back to knowledge like we're he's dealing with adult students, and so anything that you can see an adult having trouble with, it's going to be multiplied a lot more for minors, for kids who are a completely different place developmental assignments for the student teachers. And um, uh, three of my student teachers, I would say, just did great, really adapted to the circumstances, had much better facility with technology than I did and were able to do things a lot better than I was able to do. Uh, one of my student teachers basically checked out, didn't, didn't do anything really. Um, and um, as, as people know, for, for teachers or professors, you spend a lot more time on the student who is unsuccessful than the ones who are just cruising through. Mm -hmm. And um, so between email and phone calls with that recalcitrant student teacher, uh, it, was, it was very demoralizing for me, uh, and I'm sure it was for her as well, um, you know, just the failure to adapt. So there's the uh, that that word he used, demoralizing, and it and he mentions how often you know you do focus a lot on the negative examples, um, and for this pandemic, especially when you go into the uh, the uh, secondary and primary levels, you had a lot of examples of that kids who just disappeared, kids who, as mentioned earlier, just weren't there because. A lot of the supports they needed just simply weren't in place. And that went all the way up to the college level. I think it's interesting that um, you guys both mentioned um, just the lack of teachers because um, Susan also mentioned it. She was like, oh, you know, I believe it was like 2010. We had 20,000 people certified. And then now we only have like 5,000 certified within the state. And she said that it's because there is no, this pandemic showed that there was really no good support system for teachers and that now the best thing they can do is to show that there's support, show that there's a wage behind it too, and that they're not just going to be left for the dogs type of deal. Well, in my discussions with Dr. Brown, I asked her if she felt that the COVID-19 pandemic negatively impacted education and she discussed in our interview 
how both students and teachers alike did it adjusted to Zoom online learning, how some adjusted well, others didn't. Of course, how some professors adopted an alternate grading scheme, such as a pass-fail system. Uh, I have a clip right here of her discussing the overall impact and she feels it has changed both the department. Um, well, we've had, um, as you may or may not know, we, we, you know, we did some alternate grading schemes Mm -hmm. um, I think we allowed people to have, you know, to choose um, pass or no credit options because it wasn't, um, there wasn't anything that the student could do. They had no option but to go online, even if they felt that it wasn't going to be the best thing for them. And then, you know, I think we extended that maybe into the spring semester, though, in a slightly different format. Um, and so for those students who it didn't work well, um, you, you, you got no credit, even though it may not have hurt your GPA as much, but still there was, you know, it did slow down the educational trajectory because there were some no credit courses, um, you know, because of the modality. So I think, you know, people may have been able to stay, but once, you know, we get back on track, if you passed, say, a course that was a prerequisite, but you didn't pass it, quote unquote, as well as you might have passed it, had it been in a face-to-face -face modality, that comes out later on down the road when you take the courses, you know, for which the prerequisite didn't have such a strong grade. And, you know, because it's listed as a pass, uh, a faculty member doesn't necessarily know um, how you pass that course. Um, but that was designed to kind of relieve you know, some of the stress of having to go to an online modality. I think that the online modality um, may not have worked well for people who may not have been in, have a, who may not have had stable housing. And so, you know, if you are moving from place to place or sharing space with people, that can be tough. You know, if you're in a house home that might be, you know, uh, multi-generational, then, you know, you you uh, have a lot more people who are sharing a somewhat scarce internet resource. And so you may not have had the time, um, you know, to use the internet the way you would have needed to if you were in school and all your internet and broadband was, was dedicated to what you do to go to school. So, um, you know, it was very much a, a function of, of what your life situation was like during the pandemic. And I think that was one thing we learned is that this does not work equally well um, for all people. Um, it's very safe to say that we could have been prepared for COVID. We could have, but priorities changed over the years. We saw how this negatively affected and positively affected people, but it, we really saw the impact on how it affected our teachers. We can all say as confidently as students, as working adults, on how it affected us financially, mentally. This really gave us a chance to get the perspective from people in, in education that have different levels of education and what type of education. And going off on that for the conclusion here, some of the other points that Dr. Schaefer touched upon were 
tying into the issue of a teacher shortage, the pandemic is really what, in his own words, pushed him over the edge towards retirement. He was already planning on it. He was already looking at when would be a great time to retire. And COVID basically told him, now, now is the time to retire. And I know several colleagues who also did the exact same thing. Um, and so there was a lot of teachers retiring. Uh, I know for, I, I transferred schools uh, last fall. And the one, the person replacing me, as mentioned earlier, wasn't even a fully certified teacher. Uh, they were a they were an instructional assistant. Um, it, it was for Spanish classes because I also taught some of those in addition to teaching history. Uh, and she was a native speaker of Spanish, and that was enough for them to give her an emergency certification uh, so that she could teach. And, and so there's a lot of that going on. It all goes in into those difficulties, both on the uh, teachers and the students. And had that preparation been there, had those five indicators that we mentioned earlier been in place national, nationwide, I mean, we knew something like this was going to happen way back since, what, the 90s is when Bill Clinton read that book. Mm -hmm. uh, we had plenty of time to uh, do an education stockpile because I know, you know, he did have national stockpiles for medical supplies and things like that, but no one ever stopped and thought, well, what are the what are students going to do? What are teachers going to do? And this isn't the United States first pandemic. I mean, we had the Spanish flu in the early 1900s. And I recall seeing a newspaper article maybe a few years ago showing uh, people wearing a form of mask over their face as they went on their daily lives. The fact that it wasn't our first rodeo, but we were still just as unprepared. Yes, and I, I guess leading into what was said, that in many respects, the pandemic changed both how our, our lives are and how the education system is. And when I was discussing how these changes were with uh, Dr. Brown, she mentioned that in many respects, there is sort of a new normal in terms of both, both how these classes are taught and the all and the online learning. And here is a clip of her discussing that. Well, I, I do think that we have a new normal now. Mm. And I think that the use of uh, video conferencing and online technologies is here to stay because we have, I guess, basically, I would say like 99 or maybe, you know, or at least 90% of students have some expectation that, you know, they will have these options in some form or fashion because it was so widespread and this is internationally as well. Um, so I, I see this being um, a part of the new landscape that we have um, in education um, to be able to offer some flexibility to faculty, staff and students. I mean, I think it's, we kind of have to do it if we're going to be competitive because there aren't too many people that aren't doing it. It's very safe to say that politics really got really escalated with COVID. It was an incredibly rough year for everyone. Like many people were kicked out of their housing, like a lot of uh, apartments like sent their rent through the roof. Like we saw, we've seen the photos of 
toilet of the toilet paper aisle just being completely bare for some odd reason. Politics definitely ties into COVID into a way that we did not expect. We do want to give a shout out to all of our narrators. So we do want to give out a shout out to Dr. Leslie Brown, Dr. Robert Schaefer, Susan Spicka, Intern Provost Hill. Um, we also like to give a thanks for uh, Dr. Bloom for allowing us to host this podcast for the semester. And of course, we want to thank uh, any future listeners who are curious about the era of COVID and how it had affected our teachers and other professionals in various different ways.